Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot. We are in our our, our eighth session tonight. This is session eight of, of our Masterclass Theology journey in the book of Isaiah. And we are in the majestic Isaiah chapter 53. You, listener, would not be happy with us if we did not stop here in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is about as good as it gets. And this is quite an honor to be here tonight to be able to unpack this and to just look at the hope that the chapter gives us. Let's open with a brief word of prayer, and then we're going to journey forth. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your text and the great hope of, that is presented in, in the suffering servant and just the context it gives us for what we understand about salvation and about our sin and just about your sovereign plan, God. And we are just so grateful for your word. And we, we, we just pray, oh Lord, that tonight we would give you glory in our conversation. I, I pray for Professor D, my friend Mick, and for Crockpot, my friend John. So grateful for them journeying alongside me. And I know our listeners are blessed by them as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we, yeah. are, we are in Isaiah 53. Uh, we're actually going to start uh, in the tail end of Isaiah 52. And this is verses 13 to 15. So it kind of just goes right into Isaiah 53. So it begins here. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So, he, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And I'll take this opening section, and, and both, both Crockpot and, and, and Professor D., what we're going to do tonight, guys, is we're going to do like we did last time. We're going to have an interview style where we're going to ask questions of each other. So they're welcome to ask me questions here in just a moment. Let me just kind of just give a, a, a brief synopsis of, the, of those three verses in the tail end of, of chapter 52. We get this idea of astonishment and that who, this servant is going to prosper. He's going to be exalted. He's, there's a victorious moment here for the servant. But in the midst of this victorious moment, we get a victory unlike any other political victory we might find, because usually political figures and kings and even our celebrities, they usually look pretty good. It's, it's a very rare time when, when, when someone who's in power doesn't have you know, physical beauty or some kind of charm or charisma or something about them. And the text here kind of gives the idea that whoever this God's guy is here, whoever this person is, this servant, he's not going to have anything about him to write home about in terms of appearance. And he's going to, I mean, the, the text doesn't present the very attractive figure. And he's marred. And he's got this appearance that is, sounds like it's, it's ugly and it is almost unrecognizably ugly. And it is very... I mean, it's just it's just not a pretty picture here. And then and then in verse 15, 
there, there's a very unique word used for sprinkle. And this idea of sprinkle was used only one other time. It was in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14. And that's directly tied to the Day of Atonement, where the blood was literally sprinkled. And that was tied to atonement. So this idea of he shall sprinkle many nations, there's something about this servant. And, and that image is tied to atonement. There's another possible way to translate that word for sprinkle, and, and it, it could be uh, this, this idea of, of startle, and he's, he may startle many nations. And it's quite possible that the nations aren't expecting a leader to be in the position he's going to be in, in a victorious, accomplishing position, but either to be so ugly or so disfigured or so just malappearance that they don't understand what to say. They don't even understand what, what to do. Um, they would just have no answer to this. They, 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 they have no response to what the servant is going to accomplish. And we get the idea here that this servant is going to be injured in some way. He's going to be deformed or, or disfigured in some way. But this disfigurement is going to, shall we say, impact the world that he's going to have some kind of an injury that is going to be used in a way that's going to bless others, bless these very nations, so that they will see and they will understand, uh, even though they don't quite know what they're understanding, that they're, they're seeing something being accomplished here by God, even through this servant that doesn't have much to write home about otherwise. So kind of just a, a unique picture there. I don't know, guys, if you wanted to, to, to play with that a bit and, and any question coming back uh, regarding these three verses Any, anything i missed there that stands out to you well first of all thanks big rep for starting with this section because uh i'm, I'm really glad you did albeit it was a very last minute so don't do that again um but seriously uh though though we usually talk about you know chapter and verse divisions that they were added on for the sake of citation of such a massive work that the bible is you know they were add-on things and i'm glad that you included that section from chapter 52 because it really does fit with the rest of chapter 53 sometimes it's, and we talked about this before that colossians chapter 3 is a great example of this where it ends this section that where it talks about relationships and yet 4-1 is like the logical conclusion to that relationship discussion and yet it's chapter 4 verse 1 kind of like a, a standalone verse, like, hey, guys, you guys forgot me kind of thing. And, and we've seen this, too, where, where other verses sometimes are, are chopped in mid-sentence. So you got the one sentence extending into two verses. So, um, you know, um, and, and while I believe that uh, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15 should have been part of, 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 of chapter 53, I think there is still kind of a, a nice shift that that where you can find that it makes it work, whereas uh, the 52, 13 to 15 is God speaking about his servant, a prologue, prologue so to speak. I think that the first nine verses in, in chapter 53 is like the voice of the nation of Israel regarding the servant before God caps it off with the remaining verses in the chapter. Would you agree with something like that? It, it could be. Some, some of these, looking at the who's speaking when, it, it, sometimes it's hard to, to parse yeah. some of that. And I, we wonder about the original audience, how much they would have seen, mm -hmm. I understood. But yeah, John, this doesn't sound like a very impressive figure just by this, the outlook of what this text gives us, does it? And in terms of just his appearance. Right, right. yeah. 
And and that's the point, as we're going to see in chapter. As we're going to see. That's right. So <laughs> so right away, God is letting us know that there's some astonishment here. And yeah, yeah I know the servant shall act wisely. I understand most of your Bibles have a footnote saying, or he shall prosper. There's something about victory here that is with the, the, this, this servant's going to be victorious, but he's not going to be victorious in the way we expect uh, the beautiful, high, you know, handsome high school quarterback is victorious kind of thing. There's something about this guy that is going to just got the kings are going to shut their mouths and they're not going to have anything to say because they're not going to get it. It's going to be a non sequitur for them. They're not going to understand how this could be the case. So that's that's some astonishment. So chapter 52, 13 to 15. Now, if you on my page, I need to shift to chapter 53. OK, one second, one second. OK, so we we continue with chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So we go to the crockpot here, John, these first three verses. So what you may notice about Isaiah 53 right out of the gates, the interesting thing you may notice that kind of sets it apart from prior chapters and even the last section that you just read, Joel, from chapter 52, which thank you, Professor D, very much part of the same poem. Boy, listener. Don't get Professor D started on chapter and verse divisions in the Bible. He is not to be he is not to be trifled with on this subject. He's gonna he has a bone to pick with some people when he gets to heaven. He, he was just telling us before the series before the episode started. <laughs> um, so the perspective has shifted when we get to the when we get to chapter fifty three. Before uh, the perspective has solely been Isaiah speaking to God or Israel or it's been God himself speaking to Isaiah or Israel. Now the speaker is Israel itself. We're describing from Israel's perspective, the long awaited Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, the shoot growing out of that dead stump of Israel mentioned all the way back in Isaiah six. And that's why this section is in the past tense, <clears throat> even though obviously that Messiah figure still has not come yet at the time of this announcement, but this, this is this is prophetic speech about this is a prophetic word about that coming Messiah from the perspective of Israel. And they're now acknowledging that they missed the Messiah when he first came. They didn't know it was him. And why didn't they? Well, as Joel pointed out, because he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he didn't fit the mold of Messiah that we had assumed he would look like, he didn't fit that mold. Namely, we were expecting a king, a mighty, charismatic and magnetic leader, maybe even the physical trappings of royalty. And this person was not that at all. Furthermore, he was despised and rejected by men. He knew, he knew sorrow, he knew grief, he knew rejection. He was despised by society. Thus, we esteemed him not, it says. We didn't see him for who he really was because he was one, easy to overlook, and two, he was profoundly unpopular. And for those reasons, we didn't give him the recognition he deserved. 
All right, Crockpot, I got a couple, one major question to you. So with descriptions such as uh, young or, or tender shoot and, and no form of, of majesty or beauty, uh, what was Israel essentially saying here with regards to her relationship with the servant? Uh, what per se, uh, another way of putting it is what was Israel really trying to do here? Well, I, okay, so I, I kind of know what you're getting at, Mick. Um, I, here's what I'm, here's what I know and what I'm willing to say. They're explaining why they didn't recognize the Messiah. Um, now, do you, do you have anything that you want to add to that question? It, yeah, I mean, basically, it, you know, um, it's almost like they're trying to, like, excuse themselves. I, I, I kind of thought, you know. I, that could very well be. I don't, I'm not willing to say that based on <laughs> what is here, what's, what's in the text. Um, look, there's plenty of blame to go around for Israel. There's no doubt mm -hmm. about that. Their, their, their guilt is uh, expounded thoroughly throughout this book. Um, is what they're doing a way of saying, well, we have a good reason for not uh, believing, not recognizing him as the Messiah. So you cut us some slack. Maybe so. I, it wouldn't shock me, I guess, if that's where they were going. I think as far as I can tell, though, at the very least, what we have is it's just this honest look we messed up just like just like when you were uh when you're confessing a sin before the lord you know it's not uncommon to just kind of explain where you're at like lord i i messed up i i failed to see what i should have seen you know mm -hmm. and yeah it's like it, there's a fine line there i guess sometimes between making an excuse and just acknowledging where you were at in your sinful state and your ignorance yeah so true Thanks, Crockpot. Yeah. John my, my, John, my question kind of plays to the last line of your section here. We kind of get the idea that, that they're hiding their faces from him for a reason. And I just wonder if, 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 if they're struggling with not understanding his vulnerability and him going through so much. And so... I, they're just it just it just sounds like it's an awkward moment where it's kind of like you get a bunch of guys together and start asking about feelings and guys hey don't don't, don't talk to me about no feelings you know yeah, right. i don't i don't want to hear but you know like don't speak that language yeah you, you leave that other places so i mean it i mean it just almost sounds like this servant is going through something shameful or he's going through a very vulnerable moment and usually of our leaders yeah we appreciate it but it's sometimes hard to take in so my question for you john is it, it's, it's a very straightforward one, but I'd like you to, if you could walk through in your verses here, one to three, what in the world is this servant going through? Like what, 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 what has he endured to the point that is causing this vulnerability where they're just kind of, Oh my gosh. So it's what, what, what do we learn in these verses about what this servant's going to actually go through? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's a good question. I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away. I want to, you know, stick with what's in these verses here. So I guess I would say here's a person who is deserving of honor and recognition at a much higher level than he has ever known that he has actually garnered, right? Um, he's a social outcast. Says he was despised and rejected by men man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, so he's known no short 
no shortage of, of trials and suffering and pain and, and sadness. And um, that, that's been his life, I guess. That's been his, his, his defining uh, experience. Um, and it says, as one from whom men hide their faces, he would, so he's not only suffered to such a, to, to a unique extent, but he has been rejected and hated by those around him as a result of that. And not, he is not even, uh, he's not even earned the, the compassion of the people around him, I guess. Yeah, I appreciate that, John. Just yeah, a glimpse, I, anyway. I would invite our listeners, if, if any of that resonates with you, I mean, you could read, you could hear these words being read, and you could hear some kind of depression in there, some kind of just horrendous grief, and, and, and yeah, oh my goodness, there's so much sorrow, so much, to, some of us have been, have gone through betrayal, some of us have just gone through unimaginable emotional pain and rejection, and it sounds like that that God's servant here is going to understand that. He's going to understand that profound emotional struggle mm. and, and, and the relational struggle. He's going to get that. And so that's that's just right from the beginning that no one's going to know what to do with that. Mm. But if you've struggled, that's now singing your song. Yeah. So yeah I like that word grief. acquainted, acquainted with grief. Yeah. Oh, oh grief. Yeah, I know grief. Me right? and grief go way back. <laughs> right. Yeah. And with depression comes the evil best friend, shame. So this, this, this servant's going to understand what, what, when men are going to try to heap shame upon him or going to try to heap just despising. And I'm, yeah, so, so right now, I would say, listener, we're, we're paying attention here because this, this person being described, this is like somebody that would be a good friend to, as you go through your struggles. And so, thanks, thanks, John, for leading us to that right. first section. We kind of had a first section of astonishment. This one was a, kind of like a rejection section here. And we go to this next section, kind of why he suffers. So we were in uh, chapter 52. Now we're in chapter 53, one to three, now four to six. We continue. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Professor D, will you guide us to this section, please? Sure thing. Well, this is the chapter that we have all been eagerly awaiting from since the start of the series. And man, here it is. The man of sorrows, also known as the ser suffering servant. And it, this is perhaps the, the clearest and most obvious portrait of the Messiah as we will see him in the New Testament. Um, and, and wow, what an incredibly detailed and accurate description this, this is, you know, and, and, they, and the original audience doesn't even know how incredibly detailed and accurate this is. They may have even been thinking that this was just poetic language. No, this was incredibly detailed. This is so obvious that not only not only to Christians, but but also to our Jewish friends, you know, as I was researching this, that up till about around 1000 A.D., 
uh, Jewish traditions had held that this servant was indeed the Messiah. The suffering servant is the Messiah. And, and in numerous accounts that I've heard and read over the, the years, uh, our Jewish friends have come to faith in, in this Messiah, believing him to be the Messiah. And this was often that chapter that paved the way for them to, to come to that point. Even the most liberal scholars admit that Isaiah was clearly written over a century before even Jesus came into the scene. So the only other possible, if I can call it a Hail Mary pass for not accepting that this servant is indeed the Messiah is the only other possible thing that might fit the bill might be the nation of Israel. But the thing is that while that could be a possibility, and, and I mean, I'm really saying could in, in the most infinitesimally small ways, I think that the more honest and, and correct use of, of, of hermeneutics, basically, which are tools of interpretation, is that the fact that the Jewish tradition had held that this was the Messiah, you know, for, for so much for so long, even you know, after the events, you know, that that changed how we we number our years, you know. Um it doesn't make sense for for that servant to be Israel. We is the servant earlier in in the book may have been Israel, but not not definitely not here. Israel is too full of her own sins to be the sinless person that this servant is is said to be. All that by way of saying that verse four begins by saying that the servant was a man of sorrows, uh, because why? Because he was carrying our weaknesses, our sorrows, and our sins. And to be clear. This is not his own baggage that he's carrying. It's our stuff, our junk that he's carrying. Um, the verse goes on to explain that what we, what we that we thought that he must have done something wrong. He must have done something wrong for all this bad juju to come to him. You know, uh, you know, it's that it's, it's that karma mindset that is also prevalent and natural to. To all all people, it seems, uh, you know, we're we're you know, it it, it 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 affects the way we we see and think of things. Everything has to be, you know, you do this, this happens; you do that, that happens. And obviously, that's not the case here with the servant. I mean, even we as grace receiving Christians sometimes struggle with that kind of thinking, you know, that kind of karmic thing. Um, and this kind of reminds me a bit of of Job in in the Old Testament when his friends thought that you know he must have done something wrong. Well, here's the thing. Something was done wrong, except it wasn't by him. It was by us. It was by Israel and by us, eventually by extension. And yet this servant wound up, wound up paying for it. And verse five is, is really amazing. And again, I don't think they would have ever imagined what was being talked about here. But it talks about he was pierced for our transgressions. You know, and, and this Im is, image is especially poignant because I think it's pointing to a crucifixion here, people. Uh, and here's the thing regarding the crucifixions. They were either new during this time that this was written, or they were just on the horizon. So I'm not 100% sure where crucifixions were in human history here, but I still think we're in the pre-stages of the, the crucifixions even being a thing. So initially, crucifixions did not even involve nailing. Uh, that was a later innovation uh, that the Romans came up with for the crucifixion you know they liked it and they said you know let's, let's improve on it let's, let's include some nailing and really make this thing as a very suffering ordeal and, and um you know the, the me persians and the greeks before them 
So, you know, this is a while before the Romans come into play and turn it into that piercing thing. And if you want to be even more impressed in Psalm 22, 16, long before even Isaiah came in the scene, uh, and this is during the time of David, it was prophesied there with even more detail that the Messiah, who I believe is suffering servant to be, the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet. And when David was writing, again, crucifixions were definitely not even on the horizon yet. I mean, hundreds of years away and even more hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And, and I mean, when you when you look at the evidence, you, you know who this is. I mean, we're, we're, we're like holding here at the seams not to say who this mystery man is, you know? I mean, I feel like we're watching one of those uh, TV shows with the masked singer or dancer. We know who this is. And, and, and as the verse continues to say, it is because of this, with this being the suffering and the death. It is because of this that we now can have this peace with God. It says uh, there that his chastisement brought us peace, you know, and ultimate healing. Verse six was echoed by Paul in Romans chapter three. We all like sheep have gone astray. In other words, none of us, neither Jew nor, nor the Gentile nations was right with God. And, and, and that is not until the servant takes the suffering that should have been ours, but he takes it upon himself instead. And, and as, I, as I read this section, you know, I couldn't stop but thinking of a great classic song. And again, this is great refrain on my part. Someone paid it all. All to him I owe. You know, sin had left that crimson stain and this dude, the suffering servant, he washed it white as snow. I mean, that's what comes to my mind. And, and, and once again, this was God's plan from eternity past. None of this was an afterthought. I mean, he's saying it here way ahead of the, these events actually ever happening, you know? So, I mean, I want you to take that into account, my friends. Mm. Gentlemen? Well, my question, Mick, is, I mean, I, I, I like the uses of pronouns here where we've got, we've got verses that are he and verses that are we. And so with the we, we can, we, we can picture both Isaiah and Judah talking here. Yeah. And say, yep, that's us. And, and Isaiah, a sinner, also includes himself here. But the he, that's different. And so let's focus on a we. My question comes from a we verse here. Uh, we have in verse six, all we like sheep who have gone astray. So my question is a very, very simple, straightforward one, Professor D. What hope is there for the wayward sheep? Yeah, so as far as this is concerned, it's like, who will rescue us now? There is no hope, except there's that beautiful word there that's very similar to but in Ephesians chapter two, but yet, here goes, yet the Lord. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the but of Ephesians chapter two. Yet the Lord laid on him, mm -hmm. on the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, the sin of us all. That's where our hope comes from. Uh, that man of sorrow whom God laid our junk on. Amen. That's really good, Mick. So in, in light of yeah, what you guys were just talking about, I have a question for you. Uh, what is the Trinity? No. Um, <laughs> uh, my, question, my question, Mick, is simply, what is being described here? Is it fair? 
Oh, I, I, this this is definitely not fair, not to the suffering servant. And truthfully, we're getting treated unfairly nice because the, the suffering servant is being treated unfairly wrong on our behalf. Right. Yeah, and this is one of those sections where if you take it literally, you miss the point because wounds do not heal. And by his wounds, we are healed. So we have to understand mm -hmm. that from a, mm -hmm. some of you may understand it metaphorically. Others of you may, may, instead of a metaphor, understand it spiritually. It's like he's describing something. He's using poetry, but he's, he's mm -hmm. describing something here that is maybe speaking better than we can understand for a moment. This servant's going to accomplish something majestic and monumental, dare we say miraculous, because wounds, someone else's wounds don't heal, heal me. That's just not the way yeah. it works. So there's something going on here. Right? Thank I mean, you. This is the only real revolution in human history here. Mm. Amen. All right. Well, we continue here. We get just a, a little taste of why the servant is suffering. And we go to, to verses seven and nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, I'll take, I'll take this section, guys. I, I like how the, the biggest metaphor in the entire chapter seems to be the sheep. And so we have the one that, they, that Isaiah continues with here. And we have in verse six, the wayward sheep. And now we have in verse seven, the sheep as the sacrifice. A sheep is sacrificed for the wayward sheep. And gosh, that sounds like a substitution there. It's like one, one person or one object sacrificed for another. And yeah, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Uh, yeah, he is. He, that, that we were the wayward sheep and now he is that sheep. And he's got a closed mouth. He, he's, his, his, his mouth is closed during this process. And so there's just a lot going on there. He's in some sort of a, a trial, but he was in that trial deprived of justice. And not only was he deprived of justice, he was cut off. So we would have pictured this person, though evidently he was, you know, either grotesque in his appearance or disfigured because of this. He was still cut off in the prime of his life. That this is a guy who had this happen to him. And he wasn't some decrepit old man. This is, he's picturing someone of vitality here and someone that, that this, things are happening alongside and with and cut off. So we are looking at this image and we are just, oh, I'm just so ashamed for this guy. I'm just really, I feel terrible for him. This is a horrible thing that's happened. Not only does he not get any justice, it doesn't sound fair at all. So Professor D pointed that out. Yes, but man, he's got all this going on. And as with one final insult, he gets buried with the rich people which if we have paid attention in Isaiah is not a compliment. The rich are the ones that keep getting, they were the ones doing the, the insults. And you can look at in Hosea chapter 12 and Amos chapter three, all through these prophets, 
the rich people are the ones who are like, they're, they're the ones that are used for the ones who are deceitful, who are the ones who are cheating and the ones who are all these things. And we understand as we look at the New Testament story that that takes a different flavor. But in its original context here, it's just one final insult. He gets to, he gets to be buried with the rich people, the ones that don't seem to care. They're, they're, the, they're the, as Hosea might call the, uh, what did he call them? The fat cows of Bashan. It's like, they're, they're just fat and happy. They don't care about God. They just have so much things. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And we know, we know that's the case here because he was buried with a rich man in his death. Although it's as if Isaiah is saying he didn't deserve this kind of burial, but he's getting that kind of burial. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He didn't deserve it. He had no deceit in his mouth. He didn't have anything in his mouth. His mouth is shut. He didn't open his mouth to defend himself. He didn't open his mouth to deceive anybody. There's something going on here with this guy, but he is suffering in a different way here. He's experiencing some social suffering. He's experiencing some legacy kind of suffering. And there's something going on here that's even beyond his, 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 his emotional and, and relation. Yeah, there's something else going on here that is just extra harsh. That he did by his wounds we are healed, but yeah, he's taken our place. And so kind of an interesting three verses here that the, 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 the sheep dies for the sheep. That's what I got for this, guys. Yeah. I got a question for you, Joel. Uh, thanks for that, by the way. Um, so why, why is the verse seven part of this necessary for God's redemptive work? Why did the Messiah not only have to suffer, but to do so silently and without objection, as though he uh, deserved everything he was getting? If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we want him to defend himself. Not the natural thing is that we want him to defend himself. We, we want him to stand up and say, hey, this isn't right. We read the book of Job and we hear Job crying for 38 chapters and beating that same drum of, hey, I don't deserve this. Let me at God. Let me, let me have my moment with God. And we want Job to have his moment with God because Job considers himself righteous and undeserving of this. And I think that regarding the suffering servant, I don't think that applies to him because I don't think he considers himself that way. At no point in this suffering servant narrative, do we get the idea that he's reluctant? Do we get the idea that he's, you know, been dragged into this and okay, I guess I'll do it, God. Or maybe he's being altruistic and okay, I'll take one for the team or no, that it was God's will to crush him, as we're going to find out. It was God's will to, to consider him to be stricken. And at no point is this servant going to raise his, his hand or his mouth to protest against God's plan. There's something about this that even though he's going through, I would argue, the greatest injustice of all time, an injustice so great that no other justice, people crying about justice. Yeah, people have injustice in this world, but it's not at this level. And he doesn't open his mouth to defend himself, nor does he open his mouth with deceit. As, as Isaiah tells us, he keeps his mouth shut during the sacrifice. He keeps his mouth shut regarding deceit. And so I, I think the fact, John, that the fact that Jesus, or the fact that the suffering servant, uh, uh, we'll later see as well as Jesus. Spoiler. Jesus, spoiler. He, Jesus fulfilled this, of course. But the very fact that he doesn't protest, the very fact that it almost sounds like he has a thy will be done kind of attitude here is... It is it's necessary because it, it, it then makes God, I guess the, the big answer to your question, John, would be this. I, the way I should have answered at the beginning 
is that this servant doesn't sound like a martyr. He's portrayed as a sacrifice. Hmm. And if he, if he came and defended himself and then was still dead, he's now a martyr. Sure. And now the fact that he, he kept silent, he is the sacrificial lamb. Mm-hmm. He gets to have that image. So, so if he, if he's a martyr, then that's a different, that's a different thing. Yeah. And that's not someone giving his life for anybody. That's someone whose life is taken from him. Yeah. Dying for a cause. That's a really interesting distinction. I never thought of before. It just kind of jumped into my mind, but that's what ha- what almost have to be. Cause at the moment he defends himself, then number one, God kind of looks bad too. Right. You know, then the, the, this right. is not a great plan of salvation. This, okay. God's going to like, he, mm-hmm. it's like that Gary Larson cartoon where God's sitting at his computer and he's going to press the, the smite button on the computer and, and the little dork on the screen is going to have a piano land on him or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, God looks really capricious and a jerk there. If, if he opens his mouth to defend himself and God is like, yeah, well, whatever. There's none of that. And this yeah. at all times, he's a sacrifice and he's, he's not about himself. That's kind of, that, that should be the answer I should have given you from the beginning, but but yeah, that's that's how I would answer that. Hey, we got through in the end. We got that's there. Good. Yeah, really cool. Hey, uh, going down to verse eight, you know, it talks about the suffering servant, uh, but he he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. Who's doing the striking down here? Mm. So by impression and judgment, he was taken away. Okay. First generation you consider stricken off. Yeah, for my people. Well, in the context of this chapter, it, it is God. Mm-hmm. Is that the, it's the sovereign God who is proclaiming this. So in terms of the Trinity, this would be, um, if, if we're going to assign, if the Messiah is, is if we're going to keep the Messiah theme from Isaiah, that the Messiah is not going to be a mere man. He's mm-hmm. going to be everlasting father. He's going to be wonderful counselor. He's going to be unto us. A son is given. If he's going to be God with us in the flesh, not a mere man, but, but a man who's also like a, a God, as it were, then from a Trinity standpoint, this would be God, the father, God, the father's will is to crush this other, the, the crush is Messiah and his Messiah, the, the servant. So I would say God is crushing and yeah. This would be God striking down. In theory, you 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 could you could say that um, my people could this have been Mick? I don't know the, the the servant throwing his voice in there for one second. Is this his people? Is this the my? Is this Isaiah saying my? I'm not. Is it God saying my? Because we also know that if if in an execution that you know someone dying, yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you look at any any execution in the New Testament, for example, that it, it, it's God's will, but then the state orders it or the state mm-hmm. carries it out. And, you know, you can look at what what, what Peter would later say in Acts like he, about who was who to blame for the, the, the crucifixion. It was God's will, but also you did it, you know, kind of thing. So like, yeah. there, there's, there's various actors here. But but yeah, ultimately, and to, to fit this the context of this chapter, it is God that the Messiah is dead is pierced and i i would dare say i would at the jewish friends that you mentioned earlier i would ask our jewish friends when's your messiah going to be pierced yeah i mean at what point is the messiah going to be pierced but yeah, yeah it would be it was will, the will of god to do this that that would be my my, my basic answer to your question yeah no I'm, I'm there with you you know thanks big brave all right well thank you guys all right so we have here we've, we've kind of had some astonishment we've had rejection 
We kind of are getting why the servant is suffering. We get how he suffers here. And so now 10 to 12, uh, we, we conclude our, our, our text tonight uh, that we're going to be going through with this idea of, of intended. And so, and what we're going to do here, I'm going to read the text. And then what we're going to do is John and Mick, we're, we're, we're going to change gears just for a second. John, John and Mick are going to handle things theologically for, for us. And, and, and so, yeah, Mick will go first and, and, and I'll explain what Mick's going to do. And then, then John will go second and then I'll close. So verses 10 to 12, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a por- excuse me. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Wow. So, Mick, if you'll get us started here, help us understand this, if you would from the standpoint of the sovereignty of God. Absolutely. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to assume the posture of a, of a liberal Christian scholar here. No, no, heck no. I'll do one better. I'm going to assume the posture here of a non-Christian atheist scholar, even if I allow for multiple authors theory for the book of Isaiah, and even if I allow for portions of Isaiah to have been written during, or, or, or better yet, after the Babylonian captivity, uh, this was still, and this is what I want our listeners to be aware of, this was still written easily at the very latest, you know, going very liberally here, 500 BC. Stop, stop and think about that for a moment. It was still written 500 years before Jesus was born. And yet, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 8, he was considered cut off out of the land of the living. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. They all render a, 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 a shillingly accurate portrayal of the historically verifiable events of Jesus' death and resurrection that no responsible historian worth his weight whether Christian or otherwise, can, can deny. The death of Jesus is, is so well documented, even, even outside of what is the Gospels and Epistles. You know, like the great Bambino, God calls his shot. And he does this hundreds of years beforehand. And he can do that because he knows everything. And more, and more importantly, because he's in control of, of history itself. Again, even assuming the liberal atheist positions, if, if you're being honest and reasonable, there's just no getting around it. There, there's something eerily supernatural going on here. Jesus' death is spoken about with uncanny detail and, and this incredible accuracy centuries before it happened. O- only a God who knows it all as in, and is in complete control of the universe and history can, can give this message of hope for a prophet to announce beforehand. So, so here's the thing. If what was predicted to happen in history really did happen, I mean, obviously, we count the year 2022 based off of what? 
uh, off of the life of Jesus. So yeah, check that. That one checks historically. What does this tell us about the stuff that was also predicted in this chapter that to take place that we can't see? For instance, what I'm talking about here is the things of, of a supernatural level, things like, like miracles and resurrections. And, and what about things on a spiritual level? Things like, you know, something like forgiveness of sins and the restored relationship with, with the God, the invisible God creator of the universe. You know, regarding God's sovereignty, and, and I'm just focusing on this last section alone, verse 10. I like the way the NLT puts it. It was the Lord's goodwill. Verse 11, my righteous servant will make will make it possible for many to be counted or considered righteous. Notice, not all, many. And verse 12, where he says many twice. First, in regard to a salvation portion with many. And then this, in this, the other part where it says, he bore the sin of many. Again, not all. You know, in Calvinism and Reformed theology, this is known as limited atonement. What, what, what it means is that God has focused his salvation on whom he has focused it on beyond our understanding. God so sovereignly chose an eternity past who was to be saved. I mean, it's right there in Isaiah. You know, Paul's going to run with this in Ephesians chapter 1. But right here in Isaiah, we already see it. And, and while the natural impetus is to ask, well, why won't God save everyone? The thing is this, when you take into account the seriousness of sin, the real question should be, why should God save anyone? Right. You know, if God is God, and if we believe that he is the creator, who are we to question why or how he does anything? You know, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't need to know is the thing, though. It's above my pay grade to answer that. But what I do know is this, knowing that, that, that he doesn't have to save me. Because there's nobody putting a gun to God's head saying that he has to save me. Who can hold God accountable that he has to save me? No one. You know, this is why I praise him because I am among the many. How do I know I'm among many? Because John's gospel tells me that God wants all the many's to know this. That's why I witness to others. Because when, when, because when they are among the many and they hear God's calling their name through me, they're going to respond by faith. I take comfort in that. And, and I hope that all the many, and I'm emphasizing many there, can, can find comfort in that too. Th this creates pause and humility within me. And, and it also creates a sense of awe and wonder towards God. Mm. What this does is that it highlights the importance of, of God over us in our salvation stories. Salvation is, is in God's hands so much more. God, uh, let me rephrase that. Salvation in God's hand is so much more an assured thing than it being dependent upon my choosing. Uh, and, and, you know, here's the thing. The older I get, the more I'm learning to praise God for his sovereignty. I mean, all I got to say after that is amen. Well, th this is this is masterclass theology. And so we, we sometimes get masterclass discussions like that. Th thank you, Mick. No kidding. That was profound. Yeah, that so, was. So so now so now crockpot we 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 just got we we just got this idea as we close this letter here or close this chapter rather from the from the perspective of others or the standpoint of the sovereignty of God help us understand what's going on here you might even say from the wayward sheep standpoint from the Correct. standpoint of the people of God so the ones who are we're assuming the ones who are going to receive this 
whatever blessing the servant's going to give. Right. And so what, what would be this from the standpoint of the people of God? Yeah, well, just a few thoughts. There's something very shocking or maybe, maybe scandalous is a better word for the way in which God meets out his perfect justice. It's not typically the way we as humans would assume that justice should be done, right? As I asked Mick earlier, uh, you know, um, on the, sorry, I'm, what, what, am, what am I trying to say? It was very unfair. It was very unfair that the way that what was done on behalf of the sheeps by the suffering servant, you know, on him, our iniquities were laid. Is that fair? Well, no, it's not really. Um, like I said, that's not that's not our idea of perfect justice. First of all, it was the will of Yahweh to crush the Messiah, the one presumably sent to reconcile God and man, to restore our status before God. To the people of God, be they Jews in the 7th century BC or Christians today, there's something profoundly unsettling about the level of self-sacrifice that God makes in our process, uh, excuse me, makes in the process of making things right between us, between us and God. I think, Joel, you kind of were getting at this earlier, like, what are we, what is, what is this ser servant going through? What's the real nature of it? And how, how do we kind of react to that? His soul makes an offering for our guilt out of the anguish of his soul. He shall bear our iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was included with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. That is us, the sheep, right? The sinners. I think, I think there's something wrong with our understanding of the gospel and God's character, if nothing about it feels a little bit uncomfortable, you know? And that's the biggest takeaway, I think, for the people of God reading this. The work of Christ on behalf of the sinner is the greatest news imaginable for the sinner, yet at the same time, it hurts a little bit to hear, right? Because it underscores very poignantly the gulf, the big, big, wide gulf between our depravity and God's goodness demonstrated by Emmanuel, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it's, b b before we close, it, this is, I, I think that my guys here have shown some great restraint. Uh, this is, this is, it is very difficult not to just run to Jesus here the whole time. And what I would like to do is uh, I would like, I would like to read a couple verses here from the new Testament. And then I'm going to invite Crockpot and professor D if they would each and, and Crockpot will start with you. If, if you would then go through the verses that you did tonight and point out how Jesus fulfills them. And then professor D will go to you and then I'll close. Uh, this is Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and it's speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the New Testament is, is evident. It is overt. This, Isaiah 53, this suffering servant is Jesus. Crockpot, from the verses you gave us tonight that you expounded, where do we see Jesus fulfilling those verses? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll try to give at least one or two examples. Um, I'm, one thing that comes to mind, if you look back at, at uh, verse 
uh, two, for he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Well, here it's more just a, a basic understanding of, of who Jesus was. Jesus was, Jesus was a Nazarene. Uh, or Nathaniel asked, what, what good can come out of Nazareth? This was not a widely um, respected place in Israel. Quite the contrary. It was, it was quite looked down upon. And yet Jesus was a humble guy from a very humble place, very humble family with questionable family background, you know. Um, you know, supposedly Joseph is his dad, but, um, <laughs> you know, so there, he, he's a, he's a carpenter. He's, he surrounds himself with very humble friends and a variety of friends, a variety that most people would not really consider uh, respectable company, right? So these are the kinds of things that you, you would look at Jesus and say, yeah, I don't think so. Um, we, we're expecting a, a kingly figure of, of, this, of this Messiah, of the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus doesn't meet that, doesn't meet that mold. He's kind of runs with this ragtag crew, and they certainly don't do him any favors. The original um, Motley crew. Totally. Well, and John, totally. I, I would say from what you just said there, that that would be the, the main messianic tension of the Gospels. Mm. That, that many of many of the people who were looking to Jesus were expecting Revelation 19 Jesus. Exactly. And, and instead, they didn't know it yet, but they were getting Isaiah 53 Jesus. Sure. Mm, that's a great way to put it. I mean, they, they, they just they didn't know it yet. They, they got it afterwards. Right. Right. But but yeah. And anything else from verses one to three that you to point out before we go to, uh, to four to, to four to six? Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 pretty obvious. You don't have to bend over backwards to see the the connection. He was despised and rejected by men. Mm. This is, um, I mean, you see this all throughout his ministry, where he he has a at, at times he has a very big, enthusiastic, devoted following. But then, you know, he says something upsetting or or offensive, and you realize, you know, what they're not so devoted. They're actually really fickle and really easy to. Uh, yeah easy to disenchant, you know, except for that, that few, that core group who stayed faithful with him to the end, but the rest of them, they're there to see the fireworks, you know, and right. um, when they're not, when they're not seeing something they like, or something that sounds confusing, or sounds wrong, or to the religious elite, something that, that smells off to them, that, that is um, not up to their standard, or their interpretation of of rabbinic law or something they absolutely hate him they they want him ousted right he's despised and rejected and that we don't even need to talk about um the end of his his life the right his his trial his crucifixion yeah wonderful mick from verses four to six what what, what speaks jesus i mean the obvious one verse five among the many obvious verses in this in this chapter but he was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins he was beaten so he so we could be whole he was whipped so we could be healed i mean if that doesn't cry out jesus you've got to be dare i say it, the stupidest person on god's green earth i mean that that is crying jesus hundreds of years before jesus and again this is the early stage of the crucifixion and, and piercing part wasn't even a part of it i mean we're it, let's pretend this is a humanly inspired work. Where did he come up with the idea of that? 
It wasn't even going on at the time. Where did he come up with the idea? And again, as I pointed out earlier, where did David come up with that when even crucifixion wasn't even a thing at all? I mean, right there, you, you see all this stuff. And like I said, when our, when our Jewish friends listen to this, this is the passage that brings many of them back to, to Messiah Yeshua. This is the passage that, you know, I've heard so many accounts about this, you know, you know, and I've read about so many times there were, they read this and they didn't know, they didn't realize this was being read from the old Testament. They thought it was something from, from the Christian new Testament. And then, then they found out that was in our old, in our, in our Tanakh. You mean that was part of the Tanakh? And if anybody wants to say, oh, that must've been a later edition. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say poppycock, you know, they have found ancient manuscripts, mostly intact of Isaiah. And these portions are in there. Yeah. And they're hundreds of years before Jesus came into the scene. And Joe, hold me back because I'm almost trigger happy to jump on the next couple of verses too, man. Take it away before I jump mm -hmm. into them. Well, well, we, 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 we when I, I'll take, I guess, take a turn here. We, I mean, we can't forget and the, uh, the end of 52, the idea of he was this, this disfigured person. Well, Jesus was quite disfigured by the crucifixion. And to go through a Roman flogging, first of all, which, you know, exposed flesh from his back, and then to be crucified, it was a, a, a horrible disfigurement. And so Jesus fulfills that um, in a very, very plain way. And the idea of being tied to the word for atonement for Leviticus 16, Jesus mm -hmm. is our atonement. It's like, he is our Passover lamb. He is that sacrifice. I mean, if nothing else, this could be John the Baptist on the plains of Galilee, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. I mean, there's something there that the atonement can only happen through Jesus. You know, the letters of Paul make it explicit there. And that even when I read from the reconciled of the blood on the cross, I mean, my goodness. And that's that the sprinkling affecting many of them, affecting even the nation. So that tells us that salvation can come even to the Goyim, not just Judah. Mm -hmm. that the sprinkling is going to go towards the nation. There's hope there fulfilled in Christ. Yes. And so in seven to nine, oppressed and afflicted, he didn't open his mouth. We look at the kangaroo court that was the, the, the Sanhedrin trial there. And that was in the dead of night. You know, that was, he, he kept his mouth silent when he could have defended himself and he didn't. And he fulfilled that we're told. And yeah, my goodness, uh, he saw his, he saw his life as a substitution for others because even that very night when he has the last supper, this is the blood of the covenant. It's like, he saw this very idea that, uh, that, that poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he understood how his death was. We even understand the will of our Lord of God to crush him. He understood that in the garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled with the father's will and submitted to the father's will. He knew what, he knew what God the father was doing here that this was the will of God to crush him. And so that this is because of, of God's sovereign plan that Jesus was going to die the death he did. And yes, even though in context, I described being buried with a rich man differently, in the context of the gospels, it was, it was a very ble a blessed moment for Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man with a tomb to offer his grave, to get Jesus off the cross and to place him somewhere. Uh, to give him a nice burial. He didn't have a shameful burial. He had a shameful death. He didn't have a shameful burial. He was given a nice burial. And he, he had no deceit in his mouth. This very idea that this that was mentioned by, by both John and Mick tonight, this suffering servant did not deserve this death. And from, from a Roman standpoint, if the wages of sin is death, he, didn't, he did not 
sin to earn that death. He, you know, the, the paycheck that we deserve, that we've earned, he cashed it, not, not us. And so no deceit was in his mouth. He had done no evil. So he was sinless. He was that perfect substitutionary lamb and thus worthy of a sacrifice. And any of the things we miss, guys, that, that tie this to, to Jesus, that uh, is, is there anything else here that we didn't touch on? I'm Isaiah. sure there is, but time does not favor us. <laughs> this was this was a great well, evening, and yeah. it, this is very clear that this is one of those chapters of the Bible where it is not unfair to run to Jesus because no. the New Testament assumes that Jesus fulfills the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. This one begs you to go to Jesus. Yeah, and so if, if this is brand new to you, we invite you to start reading the Gospels, and. This is something, maybe maybe the most amazing part of this, our last session was in Isaiah 43, and we, we wrestled with this idea that God, God was going to forgive Judah's sins, it says, for his own sake. And we were wondering how God was going to make that happen. So it's beautiful, it's, it's wonderful that God's going to forgive their sins for his own sake. So that, not just for his own sake, but at his own expense. His own expense. So that when he does it here with the servant, verse 11 tells us he's now satisfied. So now God's going to, going to, going to blot out sins. Now God is going to have full and final satisfaction towards it. This is not just an atoning smearing over. This isn't, this isn't white out on your mistake on your page so you can turn your page in. The mistake's still there, but you've had a covering over, like the Old Testament atonement. This is satisfaction. This, this is an idea of a propitiation. This is something that Jesus is going to do, where the wrath of God is going to now be satisfied. There's satisfaction here. And that's the most beautiful, wonderful hope. A sinner, a sinner like us, all we who are like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. Our sin is going to have satisfaction. So our hope tonight is this, three quick points. Number one, because we can go to Jesus now. Jesus understands our suffering. Number two, Christian, Jesus took your place. And number three, all this was God's plan. And you are now considered righteous because of that sovereign, wonderful plan of salvation. This has been Masterclass Theology from the majestic and wonderful chapter 53 of Isaiah. I'm Big Rev. I'm Professor D. I'm Crockpot. We continue next week in Isaiah. Thanks for joining us tonight. God bless. Amen. See ya. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.